Say It Skillfully is about being who you really are and saying what you think needs to be said, even at work. Whether you're part of a small project team or leading a giant company, the more you accept that you're part of the problem, the faster you can be part of the solution. Join Molly Chang today as together we break the silence and learn how to be happier, healthier, and more productive at work and in life. Hello, Molly here. Welcome to Say It Skillfully, helping you find the words to create shared reality in a way that's true to yourself. Today is the third episode of my feature, Our Voices, intended to give you an inside view of the life journeys of my guests and what's shaped who they are today. You'll also hear their thoughts on ways we can accelerate social change that levels the playing field so that everyone can live to their potential. I invite you to listen with curiosity and without judgment to gain uh, empathetic understanding of people you might not otherwise encounter. My hope is that you'll benefit from a richer appreciation of widely differing experiences of what it means to grow up, go to school, struggle, work, and live in our world. I hope in unexpected ways, you'll also see a bit of yourself in these journeys and embrace that we're more similar than not. I'm honored to be joined by my dear friend, Terry Jackson, someone who's been instrumental in helping me have more skillful conversations around social justice. Terry is an executive advisor, TEDx speaker, and author. His firm specializes in organizational change. I know few who are more passionate about leadership that enables individual and collective success, and few who are less likely to have earned a PhD in management as he did. Dr. Terry Jackson, it's a great pleasure to welcome you to Say It Skillfully. Well, thank you, Molly. It is a pleasure to be here with you. I'm I'm honored and I'm humbled to be your guest today. Well, back at you, my friend. We are both indebted uh, to Marshall Goldsmith for our paths crossing in life. So a heartfelt thank you to Marshall uh, for making this happen. Uh, We've got a lot to talk about in the present, Terry. Um, But to start, I uh, appreciate you sharing with listeners your story. Well, Molly, thank you so much for giving uh, me this platform. And yes, I am indebted to Marshall, and we're both indebted to Marshall for our past crossing, and I am truly grateful for that. You know, my path begins in uh, North Carolina. I'm in Wilmington, where we actually experienced uh, somewhat of a hurricane last night. And and so <laughs> with that, um, you know, that's it's amazing because... In Wilmington, along with the hurricanes and growing up here, uh, my town has been a town that has have had some uh, some real battles and, and racial animus, if you study the, the history of Wilmington. So that kind of sets the foundation for, for who I am, because as a child, initially, I was raised in an environment that was segregated. Uh, attending segregated schools my first and second year, um, but never being taught what hate is. So in my third and my third grade from through high school, I attended desegregated schools. But to me, between the second and the third grade, there was no difference. Everybody to me appeared to be the same. We had the same wants, the same needs, the same desires, the same interests. Being someone who was very interested in sports, I naturally gravitated to those who didn't look like me who also had the same interests. So with that, 
Growing up in Wilmington, I, it was always instilled in me the importance of education, the importance of excellence. That was going to be the true differentiator for being able to live a life of, of purpose, uh, if you will. And so early on in my life, I decided that I was going to be a business major, probably around the 10th grade. Because I remember doing an interview uh, at the newspaper because I was an athlete. They asked me, what did I want to do after I completed my my, my sports uh, career, if you will? And I said, I wanted to start a sporting goods store. Because at the time, that was prior to the big box sporting goods stores. And there were local sporting goods stores. So business has always been an interest of mine. So as I graduated from high school and matriculated from college, of course, my undergrad is business. My MBA, of course, is business and, of course, the Ph.D. in management. And so everything for me and, and my, my life's outlook is that everything is business because there are processes that we have to kind of manage uh, on our own, uh, whether it's the educational process, whether it's uh, – and that's a huge process in and of itself, whether it's business material uh, learning about other people, learning how to become more empathetic, learning how to say it skillfully as you so um, geniusly um, put all of this together in your say it skillfully piece. Um, it, it's a constant journey. And so learning for me has always been fun. Reading for me has always been fun to mental. Uh, and with that, I'm here today because I believe in being a lifelong student. But I also believe in being able to give such that those who come after me can also have a foundation, a, a something to look up to, to give, to have hope. Because in, in today's society, I see that there's a, a lot of um, a lack of hope and, and, and hope is really helping other people excel. And so that's who I am. Here's where I'm from. Here's what my purpose is, and I'm just grateful to be here with you today. You're, uh, I have a big smile on my face that you can imagine. So we're going to go back a bit. And, you know, for folks who meet you, you have this, you're very grounded. You have a large stature. You're very, you know, you're, you're an athlete. So it's, it's really hard. Like if we crashed into each other, I would lose. Okay. So let's just make that clear. Uh, you're, you're, you're very grounded. So I love the fact that, and as children are, they don't see the differences. So no one, you know, this is, they're just like, well, we're all playing sports. Um, when did it hit you that perhaps other people socially, right, perhaps had had their biases or whatever? Do you recall that a moment where you're like, wait a second, like, I'm different? I'm just wondering how that was, you know, as kids. And I grew up, you know, folks know one Chinese, one black, one Korean family. And, you know, kids can be mean. And I, I remember not feeling particularly like I was fitting in terribly well. Um, so sh what was it like for you when you were you know, a kid? You know, um, I remember being a big sports fan and wanting to play football. And my first time that I wanted to play, I remember playing uh, this team called the Packers. Right? But my mother didn't want me to play because she thought I would get injured. And that's just the mother's love. But once she saw me practice and play on the team and she saw that I was good, all of those fears 
were actually removed from her. However, there were only, out of, say, probably 40 people on the team, there were only two African-Americans, myself and another um, person named Kevin. (laughs) But it didn't really bother me because I was enjoying what I was doing, doing what I loved at that time, at that age. And that was, let's say, that's the age of 10 years old. And, you know, I had to travel to practice away from my neighborhood. And at the time, we didn't have a car. So I had to catch a ride, however, to get there. But I never missed practice and never missed a game. And being one of the better players on the team, I didn't sense any racism or bias or prejudice. I'm sure it existed. But because I was good, as with most athletes, you know, there is the quote unquote, the exception, right? And then what I decided that I wanted to do was not only compete on the field, but I wanted to compete in the classroom. I wanted that same energy. And I liked that uh, attention that I was getting from being a good athlete. I wanted that same attention in the classroom. And so growing up through uh, junior high and high school, I did well on the field. I did well on the court. I did well on the baseball diamond. I also did well in the classroom. And I really didn't experience it, uh, any racist type of uh, actions toward me until probably my 12th grade year in high school. And it was very subtle. And what it was was this. It was our second semester of high school. We were just changing classes, going to our new classes for the year, for the second semester, senior. So I walked to this classroom, and I have my letter jacket on, and I'm a, you know, I'm a big guy. <laughs> and as I walk into this classroom, the teacher stops me, and she says, um, Sir, do you know where you're going? I says, yes, I know where I'm going. She said, are you coming to take my class? I says, yes, I'm coming to take your class. She said, no one signed you up for this class? I know. I said, no, I signed myself up for this class. It happened to be the highest level vocabulary course in the high school that I would signed up for. Now, those who were in the classroom, my fellow uh, classmates, they knew me. They had been in classes with them before. This was an old white lady. She didn't know me. She could care less about athletics. All she knew is she was teaching a high-level vocabulary course, and she didn't have anyone who looked like me. She hadn't come across me before. So as soon as she began to ask me those questions, the first thing that came to my mind is she sees a black male who's large, who plays football. He's a jock, and that He's probably not intelligent. That's how I processed that. So I made, I made the decision at that time to sit in her classroom and be quiet until the first exam. And I would prove to her who I was intellectually on that exam. And so that kind of fueled that fire in me to excel in that class. And so what happened was the first exam, I made a 96, never forget it. 
And from that point on, she spoke to me openly, asked me if I were where I was going to attend college, had I given any consideration to the university she attended, which is the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill, to play football for them. And I looked at her and I smiled and I said, no, I haven't given any consideration to UNC Chapel Hill. But that was that story and that was my first encounter with it. Now, after that, it really didn't hit me until going off to college and because I attended a historically black college and university in Durham, North Carolina, across town from Duke University. It didn't hit me until I began to notice the separation between myself and the white friends that I had in high school who played sports with, who were in the classroom with, because I chose a different university to go to than they did. And it's been very interesting because for me, that's been a puzzle I've been trying to figure out ever since high school, even though I'm back in my hometown today and I see a few people, I always ask the question, so what happened? You know, what happened to our friendship? You know, I'm, a, I'm an African-American male. I have a PhD. I'm decently successful. I have a consulting business. I'm an author. What happened that separated us from being the friends? Because on the fields, we sweated together. We cried together. We bled together. We were together every day. What happened? And I have not received an answer to that question. Wow. Your ability to be on the outside and look in is remarkable. The reflective capability and at a young age processing all that, I'm pretty blown away because um, there's a lot going on in those teen years. Um, let me ask about your mother. Um, tell us about your mother. Well, let me begin with this. That's my hero. I just want to begin with that. And I say that because, you know, uh, growing up, single family home, my mother worked and um, I taught my mother how to drive after I received my license at the age of 16. And so she didn't miss a day of work. She worked uh, at the hospital, the local hospital where she retired from. And every morning I woke up, I had a hot meal on the table before I went to school. And that was before uh, she did that before going to work and she went to work and then I went to school. But the importance of education, the importance of not cutting corners, the importance of doing your absolute best, uh, all of that was important. All of that was instilled uh, in me at the time because of the pride that she had in the high school where she graduated from, which was known as Williston Industrial Senior High, and they call it the greatest school under the sun. And the reason they do that, because if you take a look at that history, you'll see all of the great intellectuals as well as athletes that came out of that segregated school in Wilmington, North Carolina. And then it, they closed it in, I think it was 1968, I think was the last graduate class. But she set the... Um, framework or the model for me to follow um, as a as a as a person as a, as an individual, and so as I said, you know, when you ask the question, that's that's who my hero is. Yeah, so um, amazing uh, to do that on her own. 
Terry is uh, remarkable. The um, talk about the, um, I, I guess the dynamics of um, you know William's got this history, right? Of um, and we've talked about recently things that are going on, and and maybe just share some thoughts about you know how segregated are we still just what's your view you know fast forward to now and then we'll get back to your business stuff I definitely let, let me give you let me give you uh, a statistic in in the hometown where I grew up and where I currently reside the African American community is worse off today than they were in 1972 so as we look at progress of what we call progress sure there have been certain areas um, that that are better but from a holistic perspective, uh, when you begin to look at the, the educational gaps and the wealth gaps, we're worse off than we were at that time, given all of the dynamics. Now, some have better jobs, some live in better neighborhoods, but that's what happens in, 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 in the system. And so as, as we reflect back on uh, growing up, and having a strong sense of community, a strong sense of uh, <laughs> or minimal crime. Today, it's a little bit different. Um, you know, I can go back to being probably nine or ten years old, and, and those who lived around me were very uh, knowledgeable about. African and African-American history. So that pride was instilled in me, and I was actually put in classes during the summertime where I took courses around this history to help me fully understand the history of, 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 of black people in America and prior to coming to America, the history of Africans in Africa, which also gave me a foundation of knowing that some of the truths that are being uncovered today, I studied that years ago as an 8, 9, 10, 11, 12-year-old. Right? So I, I knew those things, but we couldn't contest it because of what the history books said in the school. So I had to <laughs> regurgitate to the professors or the teachers what was taught to me, even though some of that wasn't necessarily true. So... Part of the largest challenge we have today as a people is, is kind of deciding, and people say it all the time, on how we should move forward around economics because all roads lead from and to leadership. All roads lead from and to economics. That's a piece of the puzzle that we have yet to figure out and given the fact that I've been fortunate enough to get this education and work in corporate America for 20 to 25 years and be a consultant and I was fortunate enough to work for a Fortune 10 company at the time that I worked for Mobile Oil we were the ninth largest corporation in the world and so I've been I've been exposed to all of that and then to be able to come back and to share that knowledge 
and the expectations that come with that knowledge and the degrees in the black community of you're expected to be able to know the answer to almost everything because that's what others expect from you because you've gone off, you have earned these degrees, you've been around certain people. And so as a result of that, everybody sees you as a resource. And so there's there a, that's a, that's a heavy burden to, to, uh, to carry, but my shoulders are big enough to carry that. And I know we're going to get into this, but as a undergraduate in the school of business, as I looked around me, I saw my professors who looked like me, but as I studied about executives, leadership gurus, management gurus, and experts, none of those looked like me. And because I had my foundation in quote unquote black excellence, I wanted to clean up the sticky floor and smash the glass ceiling. And so that's part of my drive around not only social justice, but economic justice and equity and proving that the hue of my skin only gives me my life experience, not only gives me my life experience, but the hue of my skin doesn't minimize my intellectual capability. And sometimes that's what people have in mind when they see the African-American. There is a narrative that's been created around intellectualism or the lack thereof. Yes. Uh, the For sure your shoulders are, are broad enough and what a great example um, and I would just say the privilege of being black, of knowing black excellence, of deep down having that confidence, um, that's a real privilege. And, you know, it's this word, I think, has, can be electrifying for people because you don't have it. And, you know, it's thought about as a wealth or an access. And, and certainly those are viable, if you will, definitions of privilege. But when I think about the privilege to have struggled, the privilege to have, you know, whether it's been divorced, um, had a tough illness and recovered, um, to have the experience that you have, I just want to offer to all listeners, you have lots of privilege about how you've come through life, what you struggled with, what you've had to really work for that and sharing that experience with others who just don't have it. It's not, they're not bad people because they don't have it, but they just don't have it. And they can't have that knowledge without um, some of us helping them to know that. Um, I just want to really empower folks to appreciate that um, whether it's to be alone or um, to really struggle to not have economic means and what it takes to really, you know, the folks I know who worked three jobs to get through school, kids, I, friends were like, look, I was so stressed out. I never want my kids to be that stressed out. But just having that experience is so, it's so powerful. I mean, just, and, and, and yeah. so, yeah. <laughs> and you know, Molly, if I can interject, do you use the term that I've never really used before, right? Because I never saw it as that. It was, what was what I was supposed to do and what was supposed to happen, right? And I never used the word struggle. I never saw it as that. It was a journey that was supposed to take place. It was what I was supposed to do. You know, at an early age, I looked around, I saw what was happening in the neighborhood, um, and I decided, I made some decisions at an early age. There were certain things I, were go I was going to do 
there were certain things I wasn't going to do. And when I made those decisions, I got on that path of academics, uh, athletics, and that was going to be the way. But it wasn't, I never saw it uh, as a struggle. I expected to to do well in high school. I expected to do well in college uh, from an academic perspective. I expected to sit at the front of the classroom and learn and to become a leader. Um, a lot of this was, it's just what the expectations, you know, as you want to say, tossing it out to the universe and, and making it happen, right? I expected these uh, these kinds of things. And so not to say that there haven't been obstacles, but I've always been the person to say, how do I make it happen? This is so empowering for folks. And I love the call out here that the label of the word struggle. Sure. You know, you can see it that way. Um, and, and not to deny that for some folks, they actually are feeling struggle, but to be able to just embrace it. This is what's going on. This is my journey. Uh, what's happening needs to happen. And it's goodness and it's growth and it's how I'm going to be better. It may not necessarily always be fun. You know, I'm not trying to um, be unicorns and rainbows here. Uh, thank you for calling that out. That's a huge insight for me. Let's talk about the how you led yourself, because you have a really great business background. So maybe a quick synopsis of your own business journey, Terry, and then let's talk about what do we want to have happen um, to lead us to a much, to a better place. Well, oh, thank you. You know, initially after graduating from college, I took a position with the a transportation company, Norfolk Southern Organization, down in Atlanta. I'm sitting behind a desk as an auditor, which wasn't me. I didn't like that. But, hey, coming out of college, you know, my goal out of college was to have a position. And so I started my sophomore year in college interviewing with companies so that I would know <laughs> the most frequently asked questions and I can formulate responses to them because they all use the same process, right? So I studied the process. I began the interview. So by the time I left school, guess what? I had a position. That was my goal. So I was a marketing undergrad major. And here I am sitting behind a desk and I'm like, man, this isn't for me. So I took took the opportunity to um, interview with Mobile Oil at the time. And in interviewing with Mobile Oil, I was offered a position in sales and marketing which took me to Los Angeles. So I'm going from North Carolina, you know, North Carolina native to Atlanta, Georgia, to work for Norfolk Southern to Los Angeles, California, get into sales and the marketing and the management. And then, you know, at at that time, the family wanted to come back east. And so after about three or four years out there in Los Angeles, California, come back to my hometown as a pharmaceutical sales rep, first black pharmaceutical sales rep in my city. Heck, you know, with the pharmaceutical, they kind of, um, you know, they lay people off on the regular, depending on what our product is doing. And so I decided to go into business for myself. Went into business for myself about nine years. Um, and then decided to do my master's and do the PhD. Went back into corporate America and ran a division of an organization. For five years, we never missed a number. And so uh, I remember (laughs) in an interview process, I was interviewing with a gentleman who was 
a he would be a he would be my peer. And so as I interviewed with him, I asked him all the same question at the end of the interview. So now that you've had the opportunity to get to know me better, would you hire me if you had the opportunity? And this one gentleman told me no, but he wasn't a hiring manager. And I never forgot that going back into corporate America. So what I did was I put a chip on my shoulder and said, whatever I do, I want my region to always outperform his region. And I did so for five years. And he ended up coming to me asking me, so how are you getting your people to perform? And my answer was very simple. I'm treating human beings like human beings. I'm holding them accountable and responsible. I'm not, I'm not uh, micromanaging them. They know what the outcomes are supposed to be. They have the leeway to go and produce, and I manage the process. It's very simple. And so one year, 2011, I was the best in the organization at running this. Uh, we were responsible for generating $500 million a year in our division, and we never missed a number. But it was only about treating human beings like humans, right? Understanding and b being able to empathize with them, being able to sympathize with them, understanding, you know, their their makeup, who needed a pat on the back, who needed a kick in the rear, um, knowing who their family members, knowing the name of their dog, understanding when their birthdays were, when their wedding anniversaries were. And so with all of that, we sent a card to everybody on all of those given times, and it, it showed them that they were special. So by the time I left there after five years, they were ready to run through the wall for me because I understood them as people, not just as employees. We went to the games together. This was in Columbus, Ohio, so we went to the Ohio State football game together. We went to the basketball game together. We went bowling together. You know, I, I introduced them to this exercise in bowling when you bowl with the opposite hand just to figure out how do you deal with change on a day-to-day -day basis. It was a very funny exercise, bowling with the opposite hand, but it taught them so much about themselves and it taught me a lot about them as well. So that's my kind of corporate experience and that's how I get to, to kind of where I am today. I've had several podcasts um, with, with great leaders. That's how I met Marshall. Um, and that's how I you know, got to this point of being a MG 100 and, and becoming a good friend to you, Molly. Uh, you inspire. Let's treat human beings like human beings. Woohoo! <laughs> Some shout out, a global shout out for that. Um, you're so ahead of your time. I'm, I'm blown away. The true north, and you know, it, it's. It, and I know, you know, for a lot of folks, it seems to be a lot harder than it may have been for you. It just does seem, Terry, that you have known your way. And, you know, I think your high compete factor from all those sports is <laughs> it's coming very <laughs> handy for you. I do have to do one quick segue on the sports thing because I'm, I'm literally the polar opposite of you, right? I'm like 5'4 and 50 kilos. <laughs> and I was out, you know, largely all male groups. And I remember some long ago we were out, um, had some event, and we were going, you know, running, jogging. It was just maybe three or four or five of us. And so we're coming in and there's a big, everybody else is having cocktails. So it's kind of a very public thing. And so I just decide without leaving anybody behind, I'm like, you guys ready to pick it up? And I just picked it up just enough 
so that nobody fell apart, but that when they crossed the line, I could tell it was like a gasping for oxygen. And, and, I, and I kind of remember like this is a sports thing and everyone has their way of kind of saying like, look at, you know, I got it. And then people are like, yeah, you got it. Undeniable. You never, <laughs> so I had to chuckle about the sporting. <laughs> right? I do. I get it. Um, what, uh, so let's be practical here. Um, you know, there's, there's a lot of great opportunity for people to be letter, better leaders. There's great leaders out there. We know we're provisioning you know, quite a few. I'll go out on a limb and say we're in a, a crisis of leadership of pretty epic proportion in a lot of places. Not because people are bad people. I, I believe strongly people deserve to be led. They really do. Um, and, um, you know, what, what can we do? I mean, for folks listening, for folks who are leaders, for folks who aren't leaders, Terry, what are some things that you, you know, wish that, that we can make happen now? Hmm. That's, that's a great question, Molly. What can we make happen right now? First thing we have to do is listen to understand, right? Objectively listen to truly understand. Because there's still groups who miss the truth. They misinterpret, or their their interpretation of what's happening and what's said is still skewed. And so we have to get to the foundation of what's actually happening. And as I said earlier, human beings aren't being treated like human beings. And so I've used the example of the hue of my skin, it serves a biological function in nature. And the hue of everybody's skin serves a biological function in nature. It's like looking out at outside and it's sunny and it's bright and you see the green leaves. Well, the green leaves serve a biological function to that tree. That's all that the hue of my skin does. It doesn't make me any less and it doesn't make me any better than. It just serves a function. Once you understand that, you know that all other bodily functions are the same, male or female. That's the only difference that exists, right? So that means I've stripped it down to what it means to be human, and that is what is your biological function in nature? What is your purpose? Why do you exist? Well, we all exist to serve. How we serve is what we go on the journey for. How the, whether we serve through business, whether we serve through uh, being a minister, whether we serve uh, by being uh, a, a doctor, or a nurse, or accountant, a fireman, a police officer, that's how we serve. But our goal is to serve humanity. And humanity should thrive if we can get past all of the narratives and the myths that's been created around groups being better than others. Because at the end of the day, we were born and we're going to die, right? We're going to transition to another another plane, right? But if you understand what that commonality is, and that's being human, we all came here the same, and nothing's going to change. So listen 
and understand. Then you have to act. When you see another human being being treated inhumane, you have to speak up, you have to step up, and you have to act. Now, your actions may not necessarily always be correct or accurate, right? But then that goes to self-leadership, right? You course correct over time as you learn from how you stepped up or how you spoke up for someone, right? Again, and it goes back to being a lifelong learner because life is about, life is always teaching us lessons. And we have to learn from those lessons and we have to course correct and we have to be good stewards in the community, throughout society, and we have to be good self-leaders, not necessarily followers. It's not hard to figure out what's right versus what's wrong. And oftentimes I think the followers fall into those groups of people who perpetuate the myth and don't become good listeners to find out what the truth actually is around being human. And so as we've experienced COVID-19, as we've seen George Floyd call out for his dead mother as he was dying, uh, what we have seen is the reconnection of humanity to humanity. COVID slowed the world down for us. Had it not been for that, we would have never known who George Floyd was, but it did. So Mother Nature did her job to slow us down as human beings and say, you have to take a better look at yourself and you have to do better as a group of beings on this earth that I created because you're not living as I would like for you to live. And that is to be human with one another. So let's strip away the titles of CEO, of sergeant, of corporal, of senior vice president. And let's deal with Terry and Molly such that there is not a relationship that's being created based upon superiority and inferiority because of a position that's being held. And this society is a, is a society of positions, whether it's in the corporate setting, whether it's in the community setting. There's always someone or some group that thinks they're a little bit better, and then on the opposite end, that makes another group feel like they're not good enough. Well, we can get to the point where we see each other as equals and we have equity in this game, then we'll, we'll, we'll become human again. The simplicity, the, the fact that we can't deny nature. Oh, brilliant. I love what you've just shared. I, you know, would love to think that the enlightened folks who do have the titles um, can eat this up and, and intuitively appreciate that perhaps unconsciously there's ways that they may have not um, let folks use their voice, um, asked to share, asked to uh, understand. Um, so, so most of the folks are not in these high positions. Terry, what can the folks who are, if you will, you know, out there in mass, 
um, who may feel, you know, part of it is you may be feeling that someone has made you feel inferior, right? And and owning that, hey, you're not. And, and you know, well, one thing about you, Terry, is just you've never had doubt in oneself. And that is that self-assuredness of yours is just, you know, I... I knew it before, but now I'm really feeling that, and it's such a gift and asset. What um, what would you say for folks who who want to be able to say, "Hey, I'm not feeling the way I want to feel. I, I haven't shared what I would like to share. I don't know that you're understanding me." Um, and then also add, you know, looking back, I'm assuming there's times where you didn't say things that you wanted to say, and maybe you can share some of those for folks and and how you've changed. Um, how you go about this? You know, um, the biggest part of communication, I said earlier, is listening. But we also have to realize that we all have a voice and that our voice has impact and it has value. It doesn't matter how often you talk, it's what you say when you talk. You know, the, the, the greatest lesson I learned during my PhD process was the ability to conceptualize. And I like to use the phrase plug and play. Plug everything into the equation, play it, and then I come out with the outcome, right? And so for those who maybe don't feel as much value one of the things I always reflect back on is my wins in life. The little wins. <laughs> Graduating from the first grade to the second grade. That's a little win, right? Real simple. Being able to go out and exercise, walk a mile, that's a win. Going through an interview process and being offered a position, that's a win. Regardless of what the, 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 the position may be, it doesn't matter. But that's a win because you convince somebody of your ability to deliver the service that they need within their organization and that you can bring value to the organization. So that's a win. Getting a raise is a win because you perform to a level that, they, that was recognized and they were given a raise, given your performance of productive. Your ability to read and finish a book, your ability to do one plus one is two, right? That's a win because you were able to learn that. So that's a win. I look at little wins and I add those little wins up. And when I add those little wins up, those little wins become big. And when those little wins become big, it gives me confidence because I know that I know that I know that I know that I can do whatever it is I choose to set my mind to because of the little wins that give me the momentum to take on the bigger task. So look for the little wins in your life, right? You went out, you purchased a home, you purchased a car, you had a child, you're raising a child, whatever that little win is, they add up. We oftentimes take a look at what the failure is, right? But we have more wins in life than failures if we take a look at it. And I don't even like the word failure. What we did was we learned what not to do. We're looking for a specific outcome, and that particular methodology or approach didn't produce the outcome. So we find another way. 
That's what innovation and creativity is about. So I look for the little wins. I tell everybody to look for the little wins. That is fabulous. Thank you. Uh, Terry, we wouldn't be in a say it skillfully, you know, <laughs> show if we didn't segue to a little say it skillfully opportunity. So uh, whether it's something that you might wish to be more skillful in or something you see others struggling with, uh, share with me what conversation or tough situation can we talk through for our listeners today? You know, that's, I, I, I love that. Um, because I'm always thinking about this this whole social justice and, and, and reparations because I see I see everything as a system, right? And because I see it as a system, what I what I what I what I struggle with is the the basic misunderstanding of what it is to be human. Meaning, I want to treat another person as they want to be treated, not necessarily as I think they want to be treated. I want to find out from them. And so, all of it is encompassed and encapsulated in miscommunication. There's a lot of miscommunication that happening that's causing, that's at the very root of the challenges that we face, the inability for us to sit and to have a conversation that may include, uh, that could be incendiary, it could be very emotional, but also be, also needs to be extremely logical at the same time. And so for me, saying it skillfully is having the conversation that needs to be had that will enable us to minimize or potentially eradicate the the racism um, that exists. Because we're not going to eliminate the biases or the prejudices. That's not going to happen. We're going to have that, right? But it's the racism uh, that... I'm just not understanding how a human being of one hue can't see the other person as human as well. I don't get that. Let me offer for folks who want to have these conversations, perhaps feel like they're happening, but not, not deep enough. Um, and to just think about where you as the person are coming from. And perhaps it's something where you're not, you're not feeling heard. Um, and maybe you realize you haven't spoken up in the past and you're trying to figure out how to jump in. Um, and to be able to offer, you know, I've used this kind of we're all part of the problem, all part of the solution. So it's no, it's not just one side. It's this, it's this, as you know, system of us. Um, but to be able to throw out that olive branch, it says, you know, I, I, I'm here realizing that I, um, I want all of us to, to thrive. I want to thrive. I want you to thrive. And I feel like um, I know that I've, I've held back and not shared some things. And 
you know, I've gotten maybe a bit emotional about it, but now I'm really at a point where I, I would love for us to really listen and hear each other. Um, and to be able to say that at whatever level and to your point, say, you know, we're all humans here. And I know we think about things differently. And um, as you mentioned, we, we, we have our biases, um, but let us all, you know, try to, to, to be upfront with, you know, we're all human beings here and we're equal as human beings. And regardless of the topic, just throwing that out, I mean, I just think this is a distinction of racist, right? Are we not seeing each other as, as humans versus the way we might think about, you know, people because we have these views? Not that they can't be changed, but I, I see, I never really unpacked it that way, Terry. So I appreciate your raising that key distinction. There's an objectification and a dehumanization that happens in this process of living in this U.S. society. It's, it's you know, you see, I saw, I saw, I was reading an article and this guy in the NFL was saying that he didn't want to play during COVID-19 and he has the ability to opt out. And then I saw the response that said, you are an employee. You're supposed to do what your employer says. And so that shifted from him being human and having a concern about COVID-19 to the responder saying you're an employee. Well, that's the objectification and the dehumanization of the human being. By moving him from, a, uh, from someone who is a human being had a, a rightful concern to you're an employee. That shift in and of itself that he saw an object, not a human being. That's tantamount in this society as we use phrases and terms to describe each other. We're really not understanding how we objectify and dehumanize each other on a day-to-day basis. And if we could ever move away from that, we'll have better human relations. It's um, so, the concept is so simple and we've gotten to a point where we're so about doing and achieving and getting there. And, I, and I'm not denying that those things need to happen. Um, it's finding this balance to give ourselves permission to, to realize that, gosh, if we were that person, we wouldn't really want that to be said to ourselves. Um, whether we believed it or not. And uh, that is such a great example. And I'm just kind of in my brain thinking every day, all day long, this is going on. And, you know, obviously it's not a snap our fingers and solve for it, but a level of mindfulness and awareness on both sides that if it happens to you to, to try to kind of stay calm and just raise, hey, hey, wait a second, what's happening here? Um, with curiosity is that, you know, this is how it's, I'm feeling as a result. Is that, is that what you intended? And I think a lot of folks aren't intending and we're just not necessarily having some pointers. <laughs> so like, hey, look at this mirror, please. Um, and so if we could, with compassion, you know, be mirrors for each other, that could be a really, really great takeaway. Um, Terry, I, I'm, 
blown away. I'm so honored to be your friend and I'm grateful that you're here to help us be better. Do you have any one thought about for me, just sharing what you did today? What what was it like for you? Hmm. You know, I once heard a phrase that said different doesn't mean deficient. And so I try to consider that on a regular basis every day. Just because something is different doesn't mean it's deficient. Because we have a tendency to think that different is deficient. We've been kind of conditioned that way in society. And so knowing that different is, isn't deficient, I'm just different. And I have concluded <clears throat> that regardless of where I am, and I would ask everybody to consider this for themselves, regardless of who you are, where you are, what table you may sit at, or what room that you may step into, you always bring value to that table, to that room, to the others who are there, and you always have a voice. And it's not a matter of what you say, it's how you say it. Because given the environment in which you're in, certain vernaculars may be utilized to get your message across, but you have to understand where you are, what needs to be said, and most importantly, oftentimes, what doesn't need to be said. Thank you, my friend. I appreciate you. I'm here for you. Uh, thank you, thank you, thank you for being part of the solution. We'll, we'll talk soon, Terry. Let's all embrace difference. Uh, I'm grateful for the role modeling you've done of generosity to share who you are, where you've come from, and the power of never forgetting that. And lastly, as listeners have heard me say, um, the need for each of us to do the work of getting to know ourselves, that includes knowing what you believe, which is vital. As I close my thought for the week, in honor of the late Congressman John Lewis, truly a leader of leaders, I urge you to answer the highest calling of your heart and stand up for what you truly believe. In my life, I've done all I can to demonstrate that the way of peace, the way of love and nonviolence is the more excellent way. Now it's your turn to let freedom ring. And if you should need permission to do so, remember his guidance to you, Get in good trouble. Thank you for tuning in. That's a wrap. Please be part of the solution and kindly share the show. Amplify Terry's voice. Reflect on your top takeaways and know I'm cheering for you to be who you are and say what needs to be said so that you and those around you have a shared reality, essential to make the best decisions, execute with speed, and achieve outstanding outcomes at work and in life. Homelessness is a problem that's more costly to ignore than solve. The U.S. spends $12 billion a year responding, but resources alone aren't enough. I'd like you to know there are cities and counties proving what does work. Partnering with Community Solutions, a nonprofit I'm on the board of, more than 80 communities around the country are succeeding in ending homelessness, beginning with chronic and veteran homelessness. They convene local leaders around data and are changing how they work and spend their resources. So homelessness becomes rare. More than half have already reduced the number of people experiencing chronic and veteran homelessness with commitment to get to zero. What can you do? Visit www.built40.org and see whether your community is engaged. 
contact your mayor and ask, do you know the number of people experiencing homelessness in real time? Do you know every homeless person by name? What are you doing to drive measurable reductions in homelessness? Please challenge the fiction that says homelessness is an intractable problem. Thanks for listening to Say It Skillfully with host Molly Chang. Join us again for more ways to say it skillfully next Tuesday, 11 a.m. Eastern Time, 8 a.m. Pacific on the Voice America Business Channel. Follow Molly on LinkedIn and Twitter. Check out SayItSkillfully.com and sign up so you don't miss her latest 90-second video. And please, be part of the solution. Kindly tell others about this program so they say it skillfully too. 